The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On the night of December 3rd, 1997, Frank Dossa was supposed to be home from work by 5.30 p.m., just in time to celebrate his twin daughter's 10th birthday. But when he never showed up, his family drove out to his office looking for him. What they discovered when they arrived would later be described as the worst mass murder in the history of Polk County, Florida. Join me now as we take a look at the Erie Manufacturing Massacre. A quadruple homicide at a dry clean manufacturing plant in Bartow, Florida. You'll hear how a suspect's perfect alibi was finally unraveled after four long years of investigations and a whole new twist to the case when new evidence was discovered, casting doubt on what prosecutors believed was an ironclad alibi. Located just 15 miles south of the equator, lies the Ecuadorian capital of Quito, a tropical location where residents enjoy consistent 70-degree daily highs 365 days a year, thanks to its elevation of over 9,000 feet. The city itself is beautiful, rich in history, culture, and absolutely breathtaking views of the Andes Mountains. It's easy to see why Nelson Serrano, a man who'd made a small fortune in the United States, would want to spend his retirement here, especially considering it was his birthplace and where most of his family and friends still call home. On August 31, 2002, 63-year-old Nelson Serrano walked into the Embassy Hotel restaurant in downtown Quito with his wife Maria and some friends for a late Saturday lunch. After working tirelessly for nearly 40 years in the United States, this was the kind of way he'd always dreamed of retiring, relaxing with good food, great company, and soaking up a city he'd always in his heart considered home. After finishing their meals and conversation, the group headed out of the restaurant around 3 in the afternoon, but as soon as they walked out of the front doors, their relaxing day abruptly came to an end. Suddenly, a group of men holding weapons and wearing bulletproof vests surrounded and tackled Nelson before throwing him into a getaway vehicle with blacked out windows and no license plates. What Nelson's wife and friends had just witnessed was an abduction carried out by nearly 30 off-duty Ecuadorian police officers. Their instructions had come from Agent Tommy Ray from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, who had one mission get Nelson deported back to the United States as quickly as possible. But the tactics Agent Ray intended on using to get Nelson back had been ordered illegally. Under the false claim Nelson wasn't an Ecuadorian citizen, a claim that wouldn't hold up to future scrutiny. 
But future scrutiny wasn't anything Agent Tommy Ray was concerned about. He only needed his plan to hold up until the next morning, when Nelson was out of the country and back in Florida. But why was it so important for the agent to have Nelson deported back to Florida, especially using such extreme measures? We'll get to that a bit later. After abducting Nelson off the street, the Ecuadorian officers pulled the getaway vehicle up to a secret public office, where they whisked Nelson out and into a building in front of a judge, who quickly declared that Nelson would be deported out of Ecuador. The entire kangaroo court involving Nelson's deportation, including all the documents being signed, sealed, and delivered, all took place in as little as two hours after the abduction, at a cost of less than a $1,000 to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, money spent on what they called overtime wages for the Ecuadorian authorities involved. Overtime wages, most other people would simply call bribery. That night, Nelson was forced to sleep in one of the kennels at the Quito airport where the drug-sniffing canine dogs were kept and was beaten repeatedly throughout the course of the night by the Ecuadorian officers. His treatment was harsh, inhumane, and most of all, illegal. But it was nothing compared to the crimes he'd allegedly committed. The horrifying execution-style murders of four individuals in Bartow, Florida, back in 1997. Former longtime co-host of Sarasota, Florida's popular WSRZ morning show, Christina Crane, vividly remembers covering the case as it unfolded for nearly five years. As the murders happened on a Wednesday evening and before social media, my usual routine would be to watch the 10 o'clock news for anything we needed for the next morning's show, which started at 6 a.m. And I remember vividly the story being the first one that night. It was so horrific. And there were so many questions about the murders since they involved family members. And I recall a reporter speculating more of a domestic violence situation but overall, most were guessing it was a robbery gone bad. And since the suspect or suspects had gotten away, people were scared. Bartow is not a big place, and residents were very concerned, not only how the murders were committed in such a cold-blooded way, but that no one had been arrested. And it was such a tragedy for their families because it happened just as the Christmas season was starting. And for nearly five years, the victims' families and residents of Central Florida had been waiting for a resolution to one of the worst mass murders in the history of Polk County. Finally, the case was coming to a conclusion. But to try and understand what happened that night, we first have to go back a bit further. If you've ever been to a dry cleaners, you've probably seen the elaborate clothing carousels that carry the garments all around the shop and back into their storage areas and warehouses. These carousels are called slick rail systems, and in the mid-90s, the Erie Manufacturing Plant in Bartow, Florida, was an industry leader in engineering, manufacturing, installing, and maintaining these systems throughout the United States. The company started in New York City by two business partners, Phil Dosso and George Gonzalez, back in 1962. And although originally the company manufactured various parts for different industries, over time, they eventually found their niche, making specialized parts for the garment industry. Two years after starting their business, 
Nelson Serrano immigrated to New York from Ecuador as a 28-year-old engineer, and after building up a reputation for designing elaborate conveyor systems, decided to eventually start his own company in the 80s, Garment Conveyor Systems, financed with the help of Phil Doss and George Gonzalez. Eventually, the three men decided to join forces even further by becoming equal partners in both companies. A partnership that came with a price tag for Nelson, $150,000, half for Phil and half for George. Eventually, the partners also decided to relocate their business down to Bartow, Florida, where they could take advantage of inexpensive prices and undercut the competitors in New York. And almost immediately, business began booming. In 1991, the partner's company made a modest $750,000. By 1996, sales had increased to over $9 million. A large chunk of the increase resulting from Nelson landing a massive contract with JCPenney in 1994. In 1996, each partner's salary was $350,000, each taking home an additional $1 million in bonuses. Business was good. Their reputation was impeccable. And best of all, Phil and Nelson were each preparing their sons to take over the businesses. Nelson's son, Francisco Serrano, became director of operations for Garment Conveyor, while Phil's son, Frank Dasso, became director of operations for Erie Manufacturing. But not everything was quite as rosy as it may have looked from the outside. One source of friction was that Nelson hadn't paid Phil or George yet the $75,000 he owed each of them for buying into the company. And even though by that point, Nelson had personally made them all millions, an agreement was still an agreement. There'd also been some issues early on with Nelson's son, Francisco. When he joined the company in 1990, he began using their shipping department to run a separate importing-exporting side hustle, something Phil and George weren't too pleased about. However, by the end of 1996, both issues had long been settled. In 1997, it was Nelson Serrano's family's turn to get angry when Francisco discovered a million dollars missing from one of their business accounts. Because Nelson was out of town at the time, Francisco approached Phil and George himself, questioning where it went. According to Francisco, although they admitted withdrawing the money, they basically told him it was none of his business. They were partners, they said. They could withdraw whatever they wanted to and fired Nelson's son. As you can imagine, it was a move Nelson wasn't happy with, and a new feud began, with Nelson filing a lawsuit against his partners, hoping to recover the missing money. At the same time, he also began depositing sales checks into a new account the other partners couldn't access. In retaliation, Phil and George held a board meeting and voted two against one to remove Nelson as president of the company, and then they fired him as well. Within a month of discovering the missing million dollars, both Nelson and Francisco had been completely kicked out of the operation. But that wasn't the end for Nelson and his son. With a civil suit against his other partners still pending, Nelson and Francisco created a new slick rail systems company and seemingly moved on with their lives until the unthinkable happened. By 5.05 p.m. on Wednesday, December 3, 1997, most of Erie Manufacturing's employees had already clocked out and left the building. 
locking the doors on their way out. Only three men remained inside. The 69-year-old partner, George Gonzalez, 35-year-old director of operations, Frank Dasso, and 26-year-old salesman, George Petiso Jr., Frank's brother-in-law. Normally, after quitting time, no one would remain in the offices, except perhaps George Gonzalez, who sometimes worked late. And that day shouldn't have been any different, except for the fact that Gonzalez had loaned out the company vehicle to an employee earlier that day. The very same vehicle Frank Dasso usually drove to and from work. According to employees, George lending out the vehicle he normally used angered Frank. Why would George loan out his vehicle to someone else? Today, of all days, it was, after all, his twin daughter's 10th birthday. Without the vehicle, he was effectively stranded at the office. Fortunately, George Petiso's wife, Diane, who also happened to be Frank's sister, worked only minutes away at the Bartow Courthouse. She was a young, hotshot lawyer who'd already become a state prosecutor by the age of 28. The plan was that Diane would swing by the factory on her way home and give both Frank and George a ride to the party. Frank's wife, Maria, was expecting him to arrive home around 5.30 that evening. But when he never showed up, she began calling the office at 5.45. No one answered. Maria then called Frank's parents, Phil and Nicoletta, to see if they'd seen him or knew where he was. And by 6 o'clock, everyone was starting to get nervous. Around 6.30 p.m., Frank's parents, Phil and Nicoletta, decided to drive over to the factory themselves to see what the holdup was. When they arrived, they noticed all the factory lights were on, which was strange considering no one had been answering the phone. Nothing could have prepared the parents for what they were about to see when they stepped inside the factory. Their daughter, Diane, dead in the hallway with two bullet wounds to her head. George Gonzalez, their son, Frank, and son-in-law, George Petiso, all lay motionless on the bloody floor of Frank's office. They'd each been shot multiple times in the head. Immediately, Phil picked up the office phone and called 911. On a night that was supposed to be a celebration of life and family, Phil and Nicoletta lost three loved ones, two of their children, as well as their son-in-law. Maria Dasso lost her husband, two twin girls lost their father. When Bartow police arrived at the scene, they were shocked by what they found. The crime scene itself looked unmistakably like a professional hit. All four victims had been shot execution style, precisely and at close range. In Frank's office, no blood was found above the level of an office desk, and it's believed that all three victims were either on their knees or close to the floor when they were killed. However, Diane's execution looked slightly different, as if she'd been killed while trying to run away, and then was grabbed from behind by the hair and shot twice in the head. Detectives theorized she must have walked into the office either during or just after the executions were happening, a matter of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Forensic evidence found at the crime scene included shell casings from two different guns, 11 from a semi-automatic 22 and one from a semi-automatic 32. Detectives now knew the killer, or killers, had used at least two weapons. As investigators continued to work the crime scene, they noticed there was no signs of forced entry into the building. 
There was evidence, however, of a possible robbery motive. Jewelry had been stolen off the victim's bodies, and the offices appeared thoroughly ransacked, with drawers opened and papers thrown around in a dramatic fashion. A bit excessive in the minds of some police, who speculated perhaps someone was simply staging the scene to look like a robbery. Police also noticed a single ceiling tile in Frank's office, ever so slightly dislodged, as if it had been lifted recently. Below the tile was a blue vinyl chair with a dusty shoe print on the seat. A chair clearly used to look into the ceiling above the tiles. But who and why? When it came to forensic evidence, there was almost nothing. Although police did find a plastic glove underneath Diane's body, a glove that must have come off one of the killer's hands during the final scuffle. Despite extracting a DNA sample from the glove, testing technology was still in its infancy stages at the time, and they weren't able to develop a usable profile. From the very beginning, the Dosso family pointed the finger at Nelson Serrano for the murders, reporting the business feuds to investigators and about the bad blood that occurred earlier that year. Phil also told police Nelson had even previously threatened to, quote, ruin his entire family. And with that, Nelson quickly became their number one person of interest. But there was just one problem. Nelson wasn't anywhere near the factory on the day of the murders. On December 3rd, Nelson had been out of town, over 500 miles away on a business trip to Atlanta. He even had receipts and tickets to prove it. Eyewitnesses had also seen him in Atlanta, and cameras had caught him in a hotel lobby. Basically, Nelson Serrano's alibi was airtight. Police were also able to verify Nelson's son Francisco's alibi during the time of the murders as well. So even though the Serranos had the means, and they may have had the motive, neither one of them appeared to have had the opportunity. Regardless of the fact that nothing could directly link Nelson to the crimes, the tumultuous history of the Erie manufacturing partners was too sensational for the press to ignore. The murders made headlines across the country and mentioned in nearly every single article was Nelson Serrano. The December 5th front page headline of the Tampa Tribune read, Victims Linked to Feud. The quadruple slains in Polk County was a huge story. And I remember talking about the possibility of the timeline. Could Serrano get back and forth from Atlanta to Orlando to Bartow and then back to Atlanta in time to commit the killings? Why wasn't there any physical evidence at the scene linking him to the crimes? And the fact that Serrano was arrested in Ecuador, I felt the press was led to believe that Nelson Serrano fled to Ecuador because he was guilty. And the story that he had simply retired and moved back to his homeland was not really offered to us. It seemed like investigators had one goal and that was to charge Serrano with the murders. I'm not sure if they even ever presented a different story or a different suspect. And like I mentioned earlier, Bartow is a smaller town and investigators had a lot of pressure to solve the case. And since Serrano was originally from another country, it was definitely an easier pill for them to swallow. No one wanted to think or believe that the murderer could be one of their own. December 5th marked the day Agent Tommy Ray from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement became lead investigator on the case. And from the jump, he was convinced Nelson must be, at the very least, 
the mastermind behind the murders. If he hadn't done it personally, Tommy believed he must have hired someone. The scale of the investigation into Nelson was enormous. With his home searched multiple times, phones tapped, contacts and acquaintances interrogated. One police officer was even ordered to rummage through Nelson's trash can each night looking for clues. All efforts in the end turned up exactly zero clues or evidence linking Nelson to the murders. In the meantime, some interesting eyewitness statements began trickling into police. John Purvis, who worked near the Erie Manufacturing Factory, had spotted a man wearing a suit, lighting a cigarette outside the building as he drove by on the same night of the murders, right around 5.45 p.m. A composite sketch was drawn of the man John described as young, between the age of 25 and 30 years old, either Hispanic or Mediterranean with olive-colored skin. Police were also told how a disgruntled employee had come to work with a gun two weeks prior to the slayings, saying he was going to kill George Gonzalez, but he was convinced by his co-workers to go home and calm down without incident. There was even a strange report from the very same day of the murders. Two younger Hispanic men had come into the factory ostensibly looking for jobs, but the receptionist believed they were acting strange as if they weren't actually interested in getting jobs, but rather scoping out the inside of the building, perhaps preparing to rob it. But despite a number of leads that might have pointed detectives in other directions, the investigation remained laser-focused on one man, Nelson Serrano. And that's the way it remained for years, with the case eventually growing cold. That is, until 1999 when agent Tommy Ray uncovered a new thread he wanted to pull. Looking through phone records, Tommy Ray noticed that in the days leading up to the murders, Nelson had made a string of phone calls to his younger nephew in Florida, a man named Alvaro Pena Herrera. Nelson had even called him on the morning of the murders. Why so many phone calls? Agent Ray wanted to know. Looking deeper into Alvaro, Tommy Ray also discovered that Alvaro had rented a car at the Orlando airport on the very same morning of the murders. And when he asked him about the car, Alvaro said he'd rented it for a friend. But Tommy wasn't buying it. It seemed far too coincidental. In 2000, a subpoena was issued for Alvaro and Nelson to appear before a grand jury. But when they arrived, Nelson was placed under arrest in front of Alvaro and escorted away. Alvaro believed Nelson was being arrested for murder. But in reality, Nelson had merely been arrested on bogus burglary charges. Charges that were immediately dropped. But not before Nelson had been booked and fingerprinted at the jail. They also told Alvaro he was on the verge of being charged for murder. All of it merely a ruse. Tactics used to scare Alvaro into talking. And it worked because all of a sudden, Alvaro began telling a very different story regarding the rental car. According to Alvaro's new version of the story, Nelson had asked him to rent a car at the Orlando airport for December 3rd. Nelson told Alvaro the car was for his mistress, a woman flying in from Brazil, and that he needed Alvaro's help keeping the whole thing a secret from his wife. On the morning of the murders, Alvaro picked up the rental car and parked it in the airport's parking garage, 
leaving the parking ticket on the visor and the keys under the rim of the wheel well. The plan was for the mistress to pick up the car and drive it to Tampa's airport, where she'd drop it off the next day. But the next day, Alvaro was in for an inconvenient surprise. On December 4th, Alvaro received a call from Nelson asking him for another favor. The rental car was now in a Tampa parking garage, but still needed to be dropped off at the Tampa Airport Rental Agency. Nelson offered to help Alvaro pay off some credit card debt if he agreed to drive all the way to Tampa and take care of the car situation. Now the question became, who had driven the rental car from Orlando to Tampa? Someone had. Alvaro claimed it wasn't him. Police would soon learn it couldn't have been Nelson's mistress either because she'd missed her flight from Brazil. Tommy Ray, however, had a hunch. In fact, he thought he knew exactly who that someone was. Nelson. But how? How could Nelson be in two places at once? It was time to re-examine Nelson's apparently airtight alibi. Nelson had last been seen on camera in the lobby of his Atlanta hotel at 2.21 p.m. on the day of the murders. According to Nelson, he'd suffered a massive migraine attack and spent the rest of the day alone in his room. It wasn't until later that night, at 10.17, that Nelson was seen again on the lobby camera. That meant there was a 9-hour and 57-minute window where Nelson's only alibi was where he claimed to have been during that time, alone in his hotel room. Did that mean it could have been possible for Nelson to have personally committed the murders during those hours? Pouring over flight manifests and rental car records from Atlanta, Orlando, and Tampa, Tommy Ray created a theory he believed was possible. A theory that would later be presented to a jury. Ten days before the murders, on November 23, 1997, Agent Tommy Ray believed Nelson drove to the Orlando airport and purchased a round-trip ticket for December 3rd from Atlanta to Orlando using the alias Juan Agasio. The name itself is what eventually tipped off Tommy to the alias. The surname Agasio was actually the maiden name of Nelson's first wife, 38 years earlier, who he'd had a son with. A son named, wait for it, Juan. Hence, Juan Agasio. On the day of the murders, Tommy speculated Nelson left the Atlanta hotel at 1221, using his Agasio alias, and boarded a flight, arriving in Orlando just after 3 p.m. From there, Nelson drove the rental to the manufacturing plant in Bartow, estimating he arrived between 5 and 5.30 p.m., where he then committed the execution-style murders alone. After the murders, Nelson then drove the hour and 15 minutes from Bartow to Tampa International Airport, where he then checked in for another flight, now using a different alias, this time John White. Records would later verify that a John White indeed had checked in for a flight around 7.30. So far, the timing seems at least possible, if not plausible. But here's where it gets really tight. The last flight Agent Ray speculated Nelson took was scheduled to land in Atlanta, wheels down at 9.49 p.m., but he's then seen in the hotel lobby at 10.17 p.m. For those of you doing the math, that left Nelson with only 28 minutes to get to the hotel, 28 minutes from the plane to taxi off the runway to its gate, 
for Nelson to get out of his seat in row 30 of a wide-body jet, get off the plane, walk through the terminal of America's busiest airport, get outside, find a taxi, and travel five miles to his hotel. It hardly seems possible, but the weight of all the other circumstantial evidence was hard to ignore. A mysterious migraine, an alias using the name of his first child, a secret rental car on the same day. And so although 20 minutes from touchdown to hotel seemed unlikely, everything else seemed to add up. In Tommy's mind, Nelson must have done it. He just needed concrete proof. And then he found it. In early 2001, Tommy Ray made a miraculous discovery. While trying to find his concrete proof that Nelson was indeed the murderer, he went back to the Orlando airport looking for the parking ticket Nelson would have given the attendant while driving the rental car out of the garage. The ticket Alvaro said he'd left in the car's visor. But the garage told Tommy the ticket was gone because it was their policy to destroy old tickets every 90 days. And besides that, their storage warehouse had suffered two catastrophic floods since the murders. Detectives had attempted looking for the ticket back in 1998 and 1999 with no luck, even back then. But Tommy refused to give up and went to look for the ticket himself. And that's when he discovered an old filing box with the date, December 3rd, 1997, written with the Sharpie. And lo and behold, inside that box, he found a parking ticket stamped with the license plate number of Nelson's rental car. He also found Nelson's parking ticket from November 23rd, the day the round-trip ticket had been purchased in the name Juan Agasio. Tommy Ray made a miraculous discovery. It was a needle in a haystack, a haystack that had supposedly been destroyed several times over. But neither ticket meant much if Tommy couldn't prove they'd been handled personally by Nelson himself. Well, guess what? After sending the tickets to a forensic lab, there it was, on the front of each ticket, a fingerprint belonging to none other than Nelson Serrano. The concrete evidence Tommy Ray had been looking for. The new evidence now firmly placed Nelson in Florida, not Atlanta, on the same day of the murders. It also firmly placed him at the airport, at the same time Juan Agasio had purchased his flight. With the new fingerprint evidence discovered by Tommy Ray, a grand jury officially indicted Nelson for murder. But now there was a problem, a major problem. Nelson was no longer in the United States. He was now living in Ecuador. For almost an entire year, Tommy Ray and others tried to convince Ecuador authorities to extradite Nelson back to the United States to face charges. But Ecuador, as many countries do, refused to extradite one of their own citizens for charges that might lead to the death penalty. However, the subject of Nelson's citizenship was an interesting one itself. Because when Nelson was naturalized as a U.S. citizen back in 1971, he was forced to renounce his Ecuadorian citizenship under their laws. In 1998, however, Ecuadorian law changed, allowing dual citizenship. And in 2000, a year before the fingerprints were discovered, Nelson applied for and was granted a brand new Ecuadorian passport. Tommy Ray believed 
there was some sort of gray area surrounding Nelson's citizenship that could be exploited. And so, after being given the green light by certain Ecuadorian authorities, Nelson was kidnapped off the streets of Quito in 2002 and deported under the false claim. He never properly regained his Ecuadorian citizenship. The next morning, Nelson was escorted by Tommy Ray to an American Airlines flight leaving the airport at 6 a.m. Four hours later, when the flight touched down in Miami, Tommy Ray was hailed as a hero in the press, the lawman who tracked down a brutal killer and returned him to the United States. That was exactly what we were told. Most of us in the press believed that Nelson Serrano had fled the country, that he was trying to avoid prosecution, and that authorities had bravely brought him back for justice, and we praised all those involved as heroes, never knowing the real story of his capture. Later, Nelson's abduction would be thoroughly investigated and declared a violation of his human rights by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. However, that wouldn't happen until much later, and by then, it was too late. Although he was arrested in 2002, Nelson wouldn't stand trial for the murders until 2006, when he was represented by two of the best defense lawyers in the state, Robert Norgard and Cheney Mason, lawyers who'd go on later to gain even more notoriety after successfully defending Casey Anthony in 2011. During Nelson's trial, Prosecutors expertly wove the complicated tale of Nelson's alleged killing trip for the jury, presenting flight manifests, the aliases Nelson had used, phone records, and the rental car documents. Most importantly, they showed the jury the parking tickets with Nelson's fingerprints, proof he'd been in Florida during the murders. But just being in Florida doesn't make a man a murderer. To place Nelson specifically at the scene of the crime, they presented the jury with the following circumstantial evidence. The office where three of the murders occurred used to be Nelson's. The same office, one former employee testified, Nelson had kept a 32 caliber revolver. He also testified he'd once witnessed Nelson taking paperwork out of the ceiling by removing a ceiling tile above his desk. The same tile police had found slightly displaced at the crime scene, with a chair just below covered in dusty footprints. The implication was then made that Nelson had stood on the chair to retrieve at least one of the murder weapons from the ceiling in what was now Frank's office. The composite sketch created from John Purvis's eyewitness account was also shown to the jury. And although the image wasn't exactly a dead ringer for Nelson, it was at least close enough to raise suspicion. One aspect prosecutors completely ignored was the fact that even if Nelson had kept a revolver in his former office, revolvers don't automatically eject shell casings when fired, like the ones discovered at the crime scene. Although the prosecution's complex and circumstantial story was extremely powerful, their actual supporting evidence was actually quite weak. During every step of the prosecution's case, Nelson's defense lawyers were able to score points during their cross-examinations in an attempt to discredit the prosecution's star witness, Alvaro Peña Herrera. The defense explained how he'd changed his story practically every time he told it, admitting himself on the stand 
He'd been intimidated by police into giving the version of the story the prosecution was now using. They believed they thoroughly discredited him as a witness. When it came to the eyewitness and the composite sketch, Nelson's defense emphasized for the jury a very important point. John Purvis described the man he'd seen outside Erie Manufacturing as being a younger man between 25 and 30 years old. At the time of the murders, Nelson would have been 59, and he wasn't exactly the kind of person who looked young for his age. But there was one piece of evidence that trumped everything else. The fingerprints. The fingerprints proved that Nelson had lied about his alibi and had secretly traveled to Orlando on the day of the murders. This, combined with everything else, seemed to add up to murder. Without the fingerprints, there wasn't enough evidence to even bring charges against Nelson, let alone convict him. The defense needed to cast doubt on the fingerprint evidence, and it turned out they got some help from the most unlikely source imaginable, the prosecution's own fingerprint expert. The fingerprint expert had been brought to the stand to bolster the state's case, but during cross-examination, the same expert shocked the court by testifying. He had serious reservations himself about the fingerprints and gave four reasons for that opinion. First, it was odd that the exact same fingerprint, meaning the exact same finger, was found on both tickets. Second, it was odd that Nelson handled the tickets with his right hand, when people usually use their left to pass parking tickets out the window to attendants several feet away. Third, it was strange no thumbprint had been found on the bottom of the ticket, where he would have pinched it. But the biggest red flag of all regarding the fingerprints was that only half of his right index fingerprint was left on the ticket from December 3rd. The exact opposite half was on the ticket from November 23rd. Two opposite halves of the exact same fingerprint found on tickets 10 days apart? Not exactly likely. Next, the state's expert explained how it was actually possible to deliberately plant fingerprints on items. Although he couldn't determine that's what exactly had happened in this case, only that he had serious reservations about the print's authenticity. And one of the reasons he couldn't examine the print any further was because it didn't exist anymore. The original print on the ticket had been destroyed by the chemicals used in the lab to develop the print. All that was left now was a picture of the ticket and a print entered into evidence. When the state rested its case after five entire weeks of testimony, Nelson and his lawyers didn't believe they'd proven anything at all, let alone beyond a reasonable doubt. In fact, they were so confident the state hadn't proven its case, they made a bold and incredibly surprising strategic decision, deciding that the best defense was no defense. Keep it simple for the jury. Don't muddy the waters by introducing more evidence. Make them focus on the fact that the state hadn't actually proven anything, which meant Nelson's defense team didn't call any witnesses, present any experts, or enter any exhibits into evidence. Instead, they rested and only gave closing arguments before the jury was sent off for deliberations. They were about to be shocked by what the jury concluded. The jury returned with guilty verdicts on all four counts of murder. Later in interviews with the press, jurors would recount 
that the majority of jurors had been undecided when they first began deliberating. But eventually, they all reached the same conclusion. Nelson Serrano was guilty, especially since no other plausible alternative theories had been presented to them. Nelson's defense strategy had turned out to be a fatal mistake. At sentencing, the jury voted 9-3 to recommend the death penalty, and Nelson was given four death sentences for the Erie Factory murders. For the families of the victims, it was the end of a decade-long nightmare to bring Nelson to justice. The man they'd always been convinced from the very night of the murders had been responsible. Frank Dosso's twin daughters, who turned 10 on the day of their father's murder, were already adults by the end of the trial. Each year, a tragic reminder of what had been cruelly stolen from them that awful night in Bartow. From the Serrano family's perspective, it was a beginning of a nightmare that continues on to this day. Nelson has now been behind bars for 20 years, and at 84 years old, he's the oldest inmate on Florida's death row, steadfastly maintaining his innocence the entire time. In the years since being first incarcerated, a seemingly endless string of appeals have been filed and denied over the years. But his son Francisco, his biggest supporter, continues to fight for his father's exoneration. In many ways, the case of Nelson Serrano and the Erie Factory murders is like the famous optical illusion created in 1915 called Ruben's Vase. From one perspective, the picture appears to be a single vase surrounded by a black background. But if you focus on the background, the vase disappears and the silhouette of two faces emerges. In Nelson's case, one perspective reveals a diabolical mind that was able to engineer a complex, brutal, and almost perfect crime. But looking at it from the other perspective reveals a man convicted on an implausible, if not impossible, timeline, with dodgy evidence by investigators who refuse to consider any other suspects. And to us, it seems like both the prosecution and the defense attorneys felt exactly the same way about this case, because neither side acted confident in their version of events. Remember the plastic glove discovered beneath Diane Petiso's body? The glove that everyone agreed must have belonged to the killer? Well, at the time of the crime, forensic testing wasn't advanced enough to create a usable DNA profile. However, nine years later, in 2006, at the time of the trial, either side, either the defense lawyers or the prosecutors, could have requested the glove tested for DNA to see if it matched Nelson Serrano, but both sides declined. That's right. Both sides were too afraid to ask for a test because both sides feared that the results might jeopardize their cases. Nelson's lawyers feared his DNA might be on the glove. The prosecutors feared it wouldn't be. In addition to the glove, outstandingly, neither side attempted to recreate the controversial timeline of Nelson's killing trip. Not even the supposed 28-minute trip from the airplane to the motel. Nelson's lawyers later admitted that they had disagreed about the timeline's possibility. Mason thought it was implausible but Norgard had thought it was doable. In 2014, after spending 12 years on death row, Nelson's new attorney was able to finally request DNA testing on the glove. The results 
did not match Nelson Serrano. In the years since his conviction, Nelson has filed a seemingly endless string of motions and appeals, hoping to find any legal avenue to present new evidence in front of a court. In 2010, the new government of Ecuador decided to fund the cost of Nelson's defense fees in an attempt for the country to make amends for its previous officials, having been complicit in illegally deporting Nelson when he was kidnapped in Quito. But despite the new resources and what they believe is new evidence, all appeals have so far been denied. At this point, in 2022, there are very few options available, but Nelson, his legal team, and his son Francisco are determined to find a way for the case to be re-examined. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Murderific. Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host from Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to murderific.com. Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals Murderific. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.